Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a horror podcast. We will be talking about horror things, so the discussion could involve such uh, sensitive topics as graphic violence, murder, child abuse, the R word, the F word, lots of letter words when we're talking about bad stuff. So with that out of the way, uh, Steve, what do we still have coming up in the incredibly long line of awesome guests ever since you went to the StokerCon and corralled them or, or cast netted them, if you will? We, we are still at uh, 10 on the list. Uh, we briefly dipped down to nine. And then within the last two days, we, we had another one added. So we're still up to 10. At, so I won't bother going through the list. But uh, we got a lot. And we're going to get even more soon because I'm going to a couple of horror conventions in October. So more. Yes, potentially that that as well. I've also reached out to a few people because there were people that I hadn't reached out to yet because I was thinking, well, I'll wait until our guest list dies down, but it hasn't been dying down. So now I'm going, okay, well, do you guys do you want to schedule something for next year? Because if we don't put you on the calendar, we might not get it. You know, this this might be a, a steady thing here moving forward. So we'll see. Growth is good. Yeah, yeah. Not I'm not complaining. Not complaining. So what else? Your webcomic at piecesofflesh.com, horror-themed, uh, cannibalistic, necromantic uh, cannibals. My book, uh, A Guide to the Recovery Toolbox, has a coupon code for, uh, to, you can purchase it for 99 cents at the moment, good till the end of the year, uh, at smashwords.com. The coupon code is LE69E. And rolling into today's guest, uh, Mr. Christopher Hawkins. Welcome. Thank you. Our pleasure. Uh, currently, I think uh, best known for your books, uh, Suburban Monsters and One Buck Horror. There's actually a series of them called One Buck Horror. What are you currently working on? Uh, well, I'm currently working on uh, the release of my debut novel, which is called Downpour. Uh, that's going to be coming out. I'm not sure when you're going to broadcast this, but it's coming out on October 3rd. And um, beyond that, uh, we have a short story that just dropped in Underland Arcana called The Clockwise People. And uh, working on more books and more short stories on top of that. So nice. keep them busy. Yeah. Uh, looking at the calendar, this should air in December. So it'll definitely be up by then. Excellent. So people can go check it out. Uh, is there any particular, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, platform that gives you a better deal if they go to it? Like, um, Not so much. I mean, it's available you know, pretty much anywhere you're going to buy books. So okay. you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on barnesandnoble.com. You can request it at your local bookstore. Um, independent bookstores can pick it up as well. So yeah, anywhere, anywhere you normally buy books, it'll be there. Okay, cool. Well, um, I don't know how much we had discussed uh, at StokerCon because it's been a little while now, but uh, basically the theme of our interview is it break, we break it into four sections. The first three are talking about what you were a fan of uh, related to horror in your childhood, teen and adult years. And then the ending section is kind of a wrap up where we talk about any reoccurring themes that maybe come up in, in the earlier parts of the call. So starting Great. with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in the eighties, so there was a lot of great scary, scary stuff kind of coming out in that time. It was almost kind of a golden age of like you know, practical horror effects and, you know, all these great kind of things being done with like John Carpenter's The Thing and, um, you know, everybody kind of pushing the envelope of what could be done with practical horror effects. Um, 
I, I remember watching cable TV as a kid and kind of daring myself whenever I'd come across a horror movie to see how long I could last. So <laughs> a lot of the early, um, you know, like the early Friday the 13th movies, like parts one and two, John Carpenter's the thing I just mentioned. Um, you know, those were movies that I would watch in like little kind of 10 minute bursts. <laughs> and, and then it would get to be too much and then I would turn it off. And then I, of course, like, you know, still be fascinated. So I'd eventually go back again. So um, yeah, to this day, I don't know that I've seen you know? Like, what's uh, that? Bad word for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, like again, it your, I said, like, conditioning yourself to horror. Yeah, it is kind of a little bit. It's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, seeing how long you can hold your hand over the fire, right? You it's know, like it's, horror uh, therapy. Mm, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's definitely sort of a daring yourself to keep going. Mm. But yeah, so those are some of the early memories that I have about, uh, you know, about horror stuff. And then, of course, from, from the reading standpoint, you know, I cut my teeth on Stephen King. My mom was a big reader and, you know, I would see her reading these, you know, these books with like these really interesting covers. And I remember the stand that had like those two characters kind of fighting on the, on the cover. And I'm like, oh yeah, what's, what's this about? She's like, yeah, you can read this. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. I'll start reading this. You can read this. It's only like 1500 pages. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. At like eight or nine years old, it's completely (laughs) appropriate, right? Um, Yeah. So, so that was definitely something that, uh, you know, I was, I was punching above my weight there, but it it stuck with me and, uh, you know, I've been a fan ever since. Nice. So the thing, practical effects, Friday the 13th, one and two, do do you remember a particular scene in Friday the 13th, one or two that uh, stood out to you? Oh God. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was part two. I don't think it was part three. But there's that scene where the girl is being stalked by Jason and she's like stuck in this room with Jason's mother's head kind of like arranged with a um, with with like her sweater. And, you know, again, it's been years and years and years since I've seen the movie, but she, she like puts on the sweater in order to like talk to Jason and kind of convince Jason that she's actually his mother. And that to me, I mean, like, God, even as a kid, it's like, wow, this is messed up. That's great. Right. So, um, yeah, that's God, that, that sticks with me. And then like any given scene from John Carpenter's the thing, like the whole, yeah. the whole thing where, uh, Wilfred Brimley's trying to do the CPR and he gets his arms bitten off. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. God, then, yeah. Like the first time you see that there's no way you can be prepared for it. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it just comes right out of the blue and it's this, this moment where you kind of realize that these people that are making this film are madmen and then anything can happen <laughs> and you are not safe and there is no seatbelt. That's just, it's fantastic. Nice. Uh, what'd you like about the stand? I, I liked that it was, you know, cause as a kid, you kind of read these, like, you know, I was big into fantasy at the time. So all of the stories were very like, here's good and here's evil and, and good will always triumph over evil. And there's a very clean line of demarcation between the two. And that book had all of those elements, but it still worked in the gray areas where you had characters that were ostensibly on the good side, but then they kind of fell away and, and ended up in on the bad side and vice versa. You know, I love the character of the trash can man. I mean, to this day, I think he's just like this really like just amazing like chaos agent, and I, I love those kinds of characters and in, in books. Um, yeah, I mean, it just felt it had this like epic feel in a way that I wasn't used to reading in epic stories at the time. So it just felt very fresh to me. So that uh, that was something that uh, definitely stuck in my brain. Okay, did you participate in Halloween when you were a kid? Oh yeah, absolutely. Favorite costume? 
I, I don't know that I have a favorite costume. I have a few that I remember pretty distinctly just because of how awful they were. Um, <laughs> well, that would be the next question is least favorite costume. But. Yeah, no, I, you know, I remember one year, uh, and this was, this was very, very early on, you know, because I, you know, being an 80s kid, of course, you know, I, Star Wars was like the thing, right? And when Star Wars came out, which is in the 70s, I was super, super young at that point. I wanted a Star Wars costume, right? Like I wanted like, you know, I wanted like a Darth Vader costume. I wanted a Stormtrooper. I wanted Luke Skywalker. I wanted all of that. But I don't know if it's because my mom went late to get a costume, but I ended up with C-3PO. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, you, how old you guys are, but like, you know, back then, like, the, the costumes that you would get were like these solid vinyl sheets mm-hmm. and they were hot because you're, you know, you're essentially wearing like a tarp. Basically, plastic, right? yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's like tarp. plastic. It doesn't breathe. It's just very like rigid. And then the masks were like a, a rigid plastic and they didn't care how comfortable they were. You know, it was just like a, you know, it was digging into your face in like weird spots and it was just super uncomfortable. And, um, yeah, you know, I remember my dad was like big into safety, so you know if if we were out, we weren't like allowed to wear the mask because he was afraid that we were going to get hit by a car because we could only see through like the tiny isolates, which is a legitimate fear. I mean, you know, to give him credit. Um, so yeah, so here I am, like walking around in this like terrible wing vinyl costume that I didn't even want anyway, but uh, you know, was was still technically Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, been a Jawa. I was trying to think like what character would be lower than C3PO. Like even R2D2 right. is cooler. Yeah, oh, yeah, R2D2 is one that's cooler. R2D2 actually helps the the plot yeah. along, you know. Um yeah, I yeah, I'm trying to think like I can't think of Although really when you think about it for the height, a Jawa would have been more fitting. That would have been that would have been fun, you know, like and this was like right after the first movie came out so there was no like Ewoks or anything like that, you know, any of those things going on. But yeah. Yeah, I think a Jawa would have been fine. <laughs> At least no one could have seen my face. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. <clears throat> Did you have any scary dreams when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, not. I don't know about so much dreams, but I, you know, I always had trouble falling asleep because my mind was always kind of going a mile a minute. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so it would take me a good, you know, half an hour, forty-five minutes to fall asleep on any given night. And that's when you're a little kid. That's like the worst time for like any of those scary thoughts to come out because you know you can see everything that's in your room but it's not the same as it was when the lights were on you know like if there's a chair in the corner and there's something draped over it you stare at it mm-hmm. long and if it'll start moving right yep that's and how it it's yeah it's such a weird phenomenon too right because i you know i would i would swear that things are moving and then you know i'd be like too afraid to like get up and and uh you know try for the light right because you know whatever it is it's gonna come get me but yes. uh yeah, so there were, I mean, I, I was kind of a timid kid, so there were a lot of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of moments like that that I remember kind of like, you know, cringing in bed, like deliberately like looking around the room for what's the next thing that's going to come, you know, going to come to life. I, I can relate. Been there. Sure um, a lot of people can. You may have asked. Hmm? I just said, I'm sure a lot of people can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you may have answered the uh, question I was going to follow up with, which was to say, you know, when you fall asleep, you're talking about your brain always going. How can I phrase this? Did you do you remember being a sense of anxious uh, energy, or was it just like just you know wired? Uh, no, I mean, I think it was. I think it was a lot of anxiety when I was a kid. Um, 
you know, it, it probably didn't help that I was reading Stephen King books at eight years old. But um, good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it, the whole landscape of you know of of what's familiar changes when when the lights go off, right? So yeah. And I also, my grandmother, who I who I adore to this day, I, I don't understand what possessed her, but she made, you know, she was very much into making making things, and she made a clown doll for me when I was a kid that I, I kid you not was was the size of me, you know. So Man. you know, ma- imagine little Chris with this clown doll that mm-hmm. is meant to be cute, but you know, clown dolls are never cute. It was terrifying. And it's and it's literally my size. I mean, you could stand it up next to me, and it would it, it could totally take me in a fight. Is what I'm getting. <laughs> and and of course, it had to stay in my room. Like I I I, of course. You know, I love I love my grandmother, but I hated this thing. And of course, it had to stay in my room. So it became like this exercise of all right. Well, what other stuffed animals can I pile on top of it? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, as like go. an early warning system like you know in, in my little <laughs> my little kid logic mind was like okay well if the clown can come to life then surely my friends my little stuffed friends can come to life and like mm-hmm. help me battle against it, giving like some kind of edge right yeah like, hold it down yeah exactly like maybe just keep it in place while i kick it in the face or something anything yeah and um so yeah so i would pile my you know my stuffies around it just to kind of like you know <laughs> just kind of like intimidated i don't know i don't know what i was thinking but it was uh yeah it became like this weird kind of exercise didn't didn't look like the one from X, uh, not exorcist um poltergeist did it i uh, know no whoever Good. gave that kid that clown needs to be in jail <laughs> that was a terrifying clown and, and what i love about that movie is that once all the stuff happens, right, and you get that kind of false ending at the end where it's like, oh, okay, everything's fine, and we're going to move out of the house, and we're going to start a new life. Yeah, what's it was there all on, Yeah, what's there on that same chair in the same spot looking right at that kid, that damn clown? Mm-hmm. No right? like Wait, when they went to the hotel room? No, not in the hotel room, but there's like that that period where they're like, um, like, you know, everything happened with Carol Ann, and she's like back, and... Um, before the storm, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah that's up. right. It was in the same house, but they had the incident and they got you know, everything was returned to normal. But yeah, you're right. They kept the damn clown. They kept the Why? clown. Like, who would do that, right? Like after that traumatic situation, that poor kid. Like they just hated that kid. Honestly, that's like my <laughs> head cannon. My head cannon was that they they did not like that kid because he, you know, it's like as soon as things go bad, it's like yeah, we're going to get rid of you. We're going to send you off to right. or whatever. You know, like that's that we were planning on doing that anyway. Like, oh no, Robbie's being eaten by the tree. Yeah, but Carol Ann's okay, right? Carol Ann's fine. Yeah, but Robbie, yeah, we're gonna take our time. Like, yeah, yeah maybe. she was the cute one. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, Robbie had like the weird teeth. You know, it's like have poor kid. I mean, <laughs> our family definitely had favorites. I, that's that's my headcanon. Is they just really did not like Robbie. So your mom read King. Uh, was your grandmother also a horror fan, or is this just a one-off? No, my grandmother had like this collection of Reader's Digest condensed books, and I don't know for anyone who might not be right. Yeah, and I, I think it was the law at the time, right? But yeah, for people who aren't familiar with condensed books, it would be like one volume that would have like three or four books in it, but they'd be cut down, and 
now the idea of doing that it, it just it bothers me greatly but that was like fairly common at the time right so you could you know take a 600 page book and whittle it down to 200 pages so it's like oh yeah of course i read that book i got the major points it's fine you know it uh it's it's such a weird thing i don't think they do that anymore i hope they don't do that anymore. but um yeah so there were a lot of that so i remember reading reading jaws in that like abridged format and it was pretty it was a pretty nicely illustrated so they had like these you know like great little pictures that went with it that i think were you know like more fascinating than the text at the time but yeah, yeah so helpful. there were yeah there were a few things that i kind of picked up okay um did anything happen in real life as a child that terrified you i don't know about terrified exactly but when i was in high school um, this was in Griffith, Indiana. There was a kid who was about my same age who was murdered by a serial killer. Oh. Yeah, her name was Wendy Gallagher. And she actually went to a different high school from me. Like in, in Griffith, there was Griffith High School. And then there was Calumet High School. And Calumet High School served like a little bit of Griffith. There was like a small like sliver of Griffith that, that went to, to that school. And of course, we were terrible rivals. But, um, yeah, she was just like out of the blue. It was like this random thing where her door had been unlocked, the door to her apartment. And this guy just, you know, who had killed in a couple of different states, just sort of happened to be here and be there and killed her in this very like brutal way. And the way it kind of spread through our school, because we, we didn't know her directly, was all through sort of rumor. And, of course, it started out and we're like, you know, yeah, this is a BS story. We're not going to, like, engage with it. But then, you know, people are bringing like, these newspaper articles and start to follow it. And it was this, you know, it was this weird kind of boogeyman episode that was happening in real life. And it was, uh, you know, it was more sad and tragic, I think, at the time than it was terrifying. But it's always kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah, something like that would stick with you. No shit. Yeah, absolutely. Has that affected your life in any way in terms of, you know, changed behaviors? Um, I don't know about changed behaviors. I mean, I am pretty fastidious about making sure the doors are locked, but, um, you know, I think I probably would have been. For a half second, I thought you said unlocked. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Sorry. No, no. I always come down on the kids when it's like. You know, they'll they'll come in from school and leave the yeah. the door like wide open. It's like, come on, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I won't tell them you wouldn't yell her a story, but yeah, <laughs> you know, same I, thing I definitely want to. I was gonna say same thing with BTK. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that was his, that's a terrifying story. Well, that that was his thing too, is he claimed that you know, oh, you left the door open, you must have wanted me to. Yeah, and that's a terrible thought, right? Like when you think about these people who have these um, sort of warped mindsets you know, that would, you know, to, to even be able to conceive of, you know, killing someone at all, let alone in like such a brutal fashion. I mean, that takes such a warped mentality. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to connect with. And maybe that's part of why I write horror is to kind of understand that mentality, you know, at least the limited way that I can, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird to think that you're probably passing people like that every single day. And you just don't know it. I mean, you know, the statistics are what well, yeah. you, you come across like five or six murderers in your lifetime and you know, you just don't know it. That's yeah. uh, that's, that's a really common. creepy feeling when you think about it. Like the, you, you hear the statistics, but um, if you think about it, if you're in a large enough group in a public area, there's a very good chance that you're, you know, within 20 feet of a serial killer at any given moment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I don't know about 20 feet of a serial killer, but maybe 20 feet of a murderer. If somebody they, yeah, killed murderer. someone. But here's the thing about serial killers that, that really bothers me and, and worries me. The ones that we catch, 
you have to think that there are There's more that's not being yeah that, that's oh, that's yeah. like the that's the iceberg that you see but what about the iceberg that you don't see right you know it's uh you know how many because every every five six years there's a story like this where you know someone dies and they like go into their house and they find like all of these like bones or you know or, or, or what have you there was a story uh, very recently i can't remember i think it was in australia where they you know it was this guy who had a farm and um you know suddenly they're finding all these human remains on it and it was some kind of like social welfare call that was how it started and you know they just found out that yeah you've just been doing this for forever and you have to wonder how many stories are like that out there that we just don't know about it's 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 chilling to think about yeah and there are ones out there that you know the law enforcement community knows about but they're not telling people for whatever reason Hmm. that's not fun either it's another layer of discomfort yeah yeah absolutely I mean, on one hand, I can kind of understand it because when you talk about those kinds of things, often you'll get uh, copycats. And so yeah. maybe they're trying to avoid that. But at the same time, True. you know, how do you balance your you, you don't want that, but you do need help maybe catching the guys. So or mm-hmm. in a case, maybe. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned law enforcement because in my in the town that I live in now, there's a uh, it's actually a national case. I can't remember Drew Peterson um, was his name. He was a cop who um, was suspected of murdering his first wife, who died kind of mysteriously in the bathtub. But it was sort of covered up and not really talked about because he was on the police force, even though there was, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, rumblings, there were, you know, domestic violence involved and all this other stuff, but that was kind of covered up. And then his second wife ended up disappearing under mysterious circumstances. And he was a private pilot. And there are people who said that they saw him like loading, like a, you know, a strange, like orange barrel onto his airplane or, uh, you know, like all of these, you know things that would lead you to think of foul play mm-hmm. and um you know he was finally sent to jail for that murder if i'm remembering correctly and then they exhumed the body of his first wife and i don't remember how that ended but whether or not he was he was found guilty of murder for that that first death i'm not sure but you know that was a big a big case in our town yeah i recall hearing about that yeah Flipping that question around, um, was there ever a time in your childhood where, when you felt completely calm or safe or bliss? Oh, you know, that's a great question, um, especially for our horror author, because it's really not something that we do. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I moved around a lot as a kid, um, and my parents divorced when I was kind of young. So, you know, it was not the easiest of childhoods. I mean, certainly, you know, there have been there have been worse, but, uh, um, yeah, I can't really think of a single, like, moment. I mean, my, you know, my favorite moments were always kind of revolving around, um, you know, various media, right? So, you know, like being able to disappear into a book or disappear into a movie that I loved, you know, that, uh, you know, those, those to me were always kind of like the good moments. Okay. The next two questions I'm going to give to you at the same time, um, just so you kind of get an idea of what's coming, but uh, <laughs> we'll start with sure. the negative one first so we can end on the, on the, on the positive. Um, okay. First one being, do you remember the first person you hurt? And then next one being, do you remember the first person you helped? Wow. That's a deep question. Um, yeah. I have to think on that one for a little bit. Come back to it if you want. 
it can be emotionally or physically. Like for instance, the first person I hurt was a, a small girl in preschool that I accidentally fell on and broke her collarbone. Oh, nice. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I do remember there's, there's a story that my dad loves to tell. I mean, he has like three stories about me and they're all embarrassing. They usually are. Right. Yeah. And um, I, there was this, this girl that I used to pal around with as, as a child, like probably five years old. And I, I came home one time and she had, she had punched me, like, like legitimately punched me. And you know, I came home, I was crying, I was upset, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, my parents are all upset. They're going to go and talk to, talk to this girl's parents and all this other stuff. And they're, they're talking to me. And it's like, okay, well, you know, um, you know, why, why, did she, why did she hit you? And it's like, well, because I hit her. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, well, the, the, why is the problem? It's like, well, because she hit me back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love so, your parents' logic. They're like, well, you're even. We're done. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe we don't make such a, maybe we don't make a big deal out of this one. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, and it's funny because I don't remember the incident, but I've heard the story so many times that it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like memory by proxy, but yeah, that, yeah. that might be the first one that, that comes to mind. <laughs> first person you helped. First person I helped. God. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's weird that the negative stuff sticks in your brain a lot more than positive stuff, though. Um, yeah, I can't. I mean, like nothing really leaps to mind at least from a young age. Okay. Not every question is going to land. You just ask because you never know. Yeah, no. I, I, mean, I, I mean, God, nothing leaps to mind. It makes me sound like a terrible person. But <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> just you never know what what you're going to remember or not remember. Sure. Sure. Um, so some of our guests have reported a uh, sort of a dividing line where prior to the line, they were afraid of horror and after the line, they now found enjoyment in it. Was there a kind of line like that for you when you were a kid or like where, um, or was yeah, it always I, mean, pleasure? I, I don't know that there was a line per se. I mean, I think through like my early high school years, I was very easily scared, but I think as as I got like more into the craft of filmmaking, at least from my like a studying standpoint, like I got very into how special effects were made and you know what the techniques were, that you know like how they built these spaceships and how they you know how they did these special effects and you know how they poured these you know these rubber in the molds and how they made fake blood and all the stuff and like all the Tom Savini stuff and um, I, I think once I started to understand more how those effects were were created it became more of a fascination with the process than it didn't actually actually being scared of what was on film and to this day if i watch this or watch a horror movie I'll, I'll be watching it more from a standpoint of how did they do that or how did they get this particular shot than i am you know sort of invested in the moment and being frightened by it you know i maybe i'm jaded now but i, I don't really get scared yeah. anymore. It does kind of enhance, but also ruin it. You know, it's, it's, it's it does. Yeah. I mean, that's been kind of the process with or the consequence, I guess, for lack of a better term with the writing is that the more you get into the techniques of, of storytelling, the more you recognize them. And, yeah. And, the auteur side of other things. Yeah, exactly. So then it becomes a different kind of enjoyment when you find something that's really cool. So yeah. in terms of like a strict demarcation line no i think it was more of a gradual process but um yeah that would have that would have been why 
the reason I asked is because you were saying there was a point where you were daring yourself to see how long you could last. So, oh sure, it, yeah, it sounded like there was some, like that there. How can I say that? You, you might have been like straddling the line at that point. Like there was both fear and pleasure. So it's like I was maybe, definitely, yeah, I was definitely towing up to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you know there, there was such like a. Uh, and a lure to it, you know, the, the idea of here's this thing that I'm not supposed to be watching. You know, it's clearly an R-rated film, and I'm clearly way too young for this. And, um, you know, being able to, you know, almost dare yourself to experience it and almost dare yourself to grow up a little faster than you probably should. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's part of that, you know, that, that draw. Yeah. So, teen years, what were some of your favorite scary stories or books or movies in teenage years? Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I, I, I moved back into the um, to the fantasy camp. So, I was, you know, like way into Dungeons and Dragons and was, you know, you know getting get my hands on the, you know, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman were writing. But um, one thing that, from a horror standpoint, that really stuck with me during those years was the original Twilight Zone. And that was something that I would watch anytime it was on, you know, flip the channels, I would stop as soon as I saw that black and white. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've probably seen every episode six, seven times. It's, uh, you know, one of those things that's really kind of shaped my enjoyment of horror and, you know, later went on to shape my writing as well. Favorite episode? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> most... Most of the Burgess Meredith episodes, which I know is kind of a punch because everybody kind of goes to them like obsolete man in time of the last. Um, there's also this great episode called Dust that, um, you know, it's it's one of the old West episodes that they did. And, you know, that, that's one of the things that was great about the show is that, you know, they would go to Rod Serling and the studio would have just finished filming a Western. It's like, okay, well, we don't strike the set for a week. So you can use it if you want. And then Rod Serling would be like, okay, and you go and you would write a Western Twilight Zone in like two days and they filmed in three days. And it was, you know, basically like free production value. And yeah, and so it was this this great story about like, you know, belief and, uh, you know, it was this this old man who like buys this magic dust from a guy who has like a, you know, he's like a snake oil salesman and he spends like, you know, all of his, uh, um, you know, like what amounts to his life savings for this magic dust that's going to help him save his son from being hanged. And, um, you know, it's this great story about just belief, and uh, that one's really stuck with me. And then um, there's this episode with Art Carney called Night of the Meek. It's a Christmas episode, and um, Art Carney plays this kind of washed up, like, you know, department store Santa Claus. And uh, it's just such an emotional and beautiful and weird story and I cry every single time I watch it and uh, I try to watch it every every year around Christmas time and oh. it's just uh, it's just fantastic what's uh, like, what's so emotional and beautiful about it um you know it's just him kind of again you know like the, that idea of belief you know where you know here's a guy who's kind of seen the uh, uh, you know the worst side of humanity you know gets this chance to sort of you know believe in kindness again and that's um you know that, that's something that's just really really powerful i'm thinking i may have seen that one if you haven't like as soon as we're done recording like go watch it it's amazing uh you mentioned two names margo something and tracy hickman 
Oh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy. Yeah. Yeah, they did the uh, the Dragonlance books. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but uh, I recognize anyone who, yeah, anyone who was into D and D in the '80s like, read their stuff. And uh, you know, it's funny because you go back and you read them now, and it's like, wow, this is horribly derivative. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's still fun. It's still great, but it's like, yeah, okay, I can see they're kind of wearing their. Um, their influences on their sleeves, right? And, yeah. and a lot As you of, did in the 80s. It was, yeah, it was exactly. Time. Yeah, and, and a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, like when, you know, when TSR was sort of at its height, you know, the, the guys who created Dungeons and Dragons, you know, they, they were not just the creators of D&D, but they were the largest single publisher of fantasy fiction, I think, in the world, certainly in the United States. So everything that they were putting out sort of had that Dungeons and Dragons sensibility to it, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, here's this sort of team of misfits and they're gonna go and they're gonna save the world. And there's gonna be a dragon involved, and there's gonna be like weird monsters, and it's gonna have magic that is very similar to the magic that you have in D D and it's gonna be familiar and it's gonna be popcorn and it's just gonna, you know, it's it's you know, gonna almost be this kind of disposable uh, fiction. And you know, so much of that stuff was like wrapped up in you know, being influenced by Tolkien and being influenced by like early Michael Moorcock books and influenced by, you know, like Bob Howard stuff. Um, but it was all kind of through that, that tabletop gaming lens. So, uh, you know, it all kind of, after a while, kind of, kind of all felt like, you know, it was all one piece. So it all kind of felt the same. Yeah. Can only uh, kill so many mobs before they just start to look like, you know, blobs of you know hit points yeah exactly like <laughs> how, how, how many orcs are going to show up to this fight yeah, exactly. um participate in halloween as a, as a team um yeah less so i think you know i always love the idea of trick-or-treating and um partly because it was this sort of communal thing and um partly because you got to glimpse like other people's homes you know, in a way that you normally didn't. It's, you know, you're standing on the front door, but you know, you're you're standing in the dark, and their homes are lit up. And I think there's something like really kind of emotionally powerful about that idea of being on the outside looking in. You know, there's there's like this voyeuristic quality, even if there's nothing sinister behind it. There's you know this sense of adventure in a way. Seeing yeah, seeing a, a context of somebody else's life that you aren't necessarily always privy to. And I remember once when I was a kid, um, trick-or-treating at a teacher's house and seeing the teacher show up at the door. And it's like, wait a minute, don't you go to the school? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what, what you are you doing? Yeah, how do you, how, how do you have a separate life? You know, it just blew my little kid mind, right? Yeah, so, so that was fascinating. And, you know, I think that because of that, I trick-or-treated a little bit longer than was probably socially acceptable at the time. So, but that, that was good because that kept me from getting into trouble, you know, doing any other kind of, like, older kid prank stuff, mm-hmm. you know, or any any of that, uh, you know, keeping houses and, you know, egging cars and all that stuff. Well, for the um, question about having something actually terrifying in the teens, this is where I'd written down the part about the classmate being killed by a serial killer, so we can jump straight to the inverse of that which is to ask was there a time in your teens when you felt completely calm or safe or bliss um yeah i mean i think high school was really kind of the time when i found my people um and i think that's true of a lot of people in high school where 
you know, you're you're stuck in grade school and you're stuck in middle school or, or junior high, as they call it. You know, you're you're kind of stuck amongst these people that you don't really choose, right? You're, you know, you're you're in these classes, and some of these people are you know are only in those classes because they happen to be around that you know that that elementary school that was geographically closest to them, right? But when you get into high school, it's a little bit wider group of people. You start, you know, having the same people in the same classes. You have more commonality with them so yeah i kind of found my people then and it was uh uh you know it was nice to kind of know that you know one there were people that had the same kind of like weird fascinations with fiction and with horror that i did and um you know didn't didn't see that as a bad thing (laughs) so that was uh yeah that was that was kind of nice did you guys have any like social events uh, related to horror movies, or you know, going out to theaters with friends, or sleepovers, or that kind of thing? Um, more in college, like we had a group that would would go out. And, you know, we were very kind of film focused, so I remember we would, you know, you know, we would go out and see, you know, what whatever was coming out at the time, and it wasn't always horror, but you know, there was usually something that was either like sci-fi adjacent or you know you know, like whatever the big blockbusters were at the time, but it was always kind of the same group. So it was this kind of bonding experience for us. Okay. Moving into adult years. What, and I know this might be a little more difficult because there might be a longer of a stretch, but um, you know, if we talk about things that impacted you in your adult life for horror media, where whether it's books or movies or whatever, can you think of like, what are the first things that come to mind? Yeah, that's also kind of a tough question. The the things that I tend to gravitate towards as an adult are, you know, by and large are the same things that I kind of gravitated towards as a as a kid and as a teen, you know. So, um, you know, like the alien movies, those are, you know, very dear to my heart. Um, you know, I, I keep talking about John Carpenter's and things because that was such a you know, like a, just like a what the fuck moment when, <laughs> when you're watching that movie and you're like, okay, all the rules are thrown out the window and anything can happen. So yeah, so those are the things that have kind of kind of stuck with me, and I've been trying to sort of pass them along to my own kids. And sometimes you'll get this reaction from them saying, "Oh, okay, that rubber puppet that you're like completely obsessed with, like that that that's the thing. That's the whole point of this movie." Okay, sure, yeah, no problem. That's great. <laughs> And, you know, they're very, they're very indulgent about it, but, uh, you know, you can tell that they're like, yeah, this doesn't really hold up and I don't understand why you love this, but, you know, I'm glad that you do. (laughs) (laughs) They don't think it's aged well because they weren't brought up with that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Although conversely, when you, when you find something that hits, you know, like that first alien movie that, you know, kind of blew their minds in the same way that blew my mind. uh, Still classic. Yeah. It just, it's so great to see when something does hold up and see that reaction for the first time. Um, you know, my kids are both teenagers, so we're able to watch like, you know, pretty much anything. And, uh, you know, just seeing them, uh, have these, you know, these, these kind of like jaw dropping moments, uh, is, is really gratifying. Nice. Any other, uh, movies where you've had that reaction with them? Um, yeah, like we just watched, I and mean, it's not a horror movie, but, um, you know, we just watched uh, a Christopher Nolan film called The Prestige, which honestly, it, it plays with a lot of horror elements. And, um, you know, I don't, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I don't want to give it away because it's one of those movies that you can really. Yeah, there is that one big twist. 
Yeah, you can really only experience that story once, right? And I mean, you can experience it multiple times and and get different things out of it. But um, you know, once once that big reveal happens, you know, the, the prestige that they talk about in the in you know in the magic trick uh, parlance, it's uh, you know, it's it's this moment where you're just kind of left with your whole world kind of rocked, and it's like, wow, I can't believe this actually happened. And and that's when the horror like. The, the horror elements of that film really fall into place and you're kind of left at the end of this movie thinking, oh, well, how do you really do that? That's how, how does one do that? And not go insane. I mean, it's just, it's, it's this amazing, you know, build up to that moment. So yeah. that, that was kind of fun to watch them experience that for the first time. Yeah. I didn't know that was a Nolan film. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one of his early ones. He did, um, I think it came right after Memento came out. And, oh, yeah. uh, um, yeah, it was before the, the whole Dark Knight trilogy. Hmm. Uh, Halloween as an adult. Halloween as an adult is both kind of simultaneously more fun and less fun because, mm-hmm. you know, we never really decorated for Halloween. It wasn't really a thing, I think, when I was growing up. Like, you know, people would put like like a skeleton, you know, like a little paper skeleton in the door or something like that. But mm-hmm. in terms of like big yard displays and these like giant Home Depot, like nine foot skeletons that you can get. I mean, you know, like that, that just didn't exist back then. So I think it's a little bit more fun from that standpoint to be able to make your house a haunted house for a little while and sort of live in that space for a little while. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of the, the whole like Disney haunted mansion aesthetic. So that's kind of what we try for when we're decorating our house is to kind of have that kind of like, okay, well, this is spooky, but it's okay. You know, it's still kind of kid friendly, you know, it's spooky, but not, you know, not too scary kind of, kind of feel. So it's kind of fun to play in that, in that space. And, you know, now my kids have grown, but, you know, those first few Halloweens um, with each of the boys when they were very, very small were, were just magic. I mean, you know, I remember taking my oldest, um, you know, he was dressed in a little pirate costume and, you know, taking him around from house to house and just, you know, having his little mind just blown that you could knock on somebody's door and they would give you candy, right? <laughs> and then, you know, like having him just what? having this mat. Yeah, exactly. Like I had no idea this technology existed. Like, why are we not doing this every day? And and then the very next day, when he put on his Halloween costume on November first, saying, "Okay, let's go do this. <laughs> let's go do it again." Yeah, right. Sorry, and then buddy. having to explain, like, "No, I'm sorry, we can't do that now. It's only one day." And then you know, just just seeing that, like that weird kind of shift like it's like okay we give him like this great moment and then the great disappointment like immediately following <laughs> it's uh yeah it's uh reminded of the uh it's a small video of a raccoon that discovers cotton candy <laughs> yeah watch <laughs> it i i am aware yeah like yeah. yes this is so great oh wait no no <laughs> it's and you can you can see a very human disappointment on that raccoon's face. Yeah, you really can. So that's kind of a like a smaller version of the thing with the kids. And yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting thinking of that. Like plus what you said about how houses are much more over the top these days with the decorations and everything. Like oh sure, it's gotta be yeah. insane as a small child going up to this house that's just like covered in decorations and skeletons and lights everywhere. Like it's it's a whole event. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and. and Especially when the kids are small, you kind of have to convince them, like, no, okay, that skeleton's not real; it's fine. <laughs> right. So, 
so there's there's an an element that was you know and then you get the houses where somebody's age. dressed up and actually does move and scares the shit out of right. them <laughs> yeah and we would look for those houses and we would try to avoid them yeah. and yeah. uh yeah like i remember there was a place that I, i'm kind of sad that it's gone now but it, they call themselves the dead end haunt and it was a it, it was it was an event where they would they would they were at the end of the cult stack and they would decorate for halloween and they had like animatronics and soundtracks and all of these things that they had kind of built up over the years and it was very professional looking it was just this amazing kind of thing and one year they brought in like community theater actors to (laughs) to play like you know like zombies and there was this this one person who was playing a little girl who was like it was very vague but it was like this undead like little girl who was looking for her dolly and stuff like that and you know we didn't know that there were going to be actors but we took the took the kids anyway we were kind of walking around and they would not break character even though you know we're like hey look we've got little kids can you just back off with just a smidge like just you know like i get that you're trying to scare people why don't you go scare those people that'd be fine (laughs) So for things uh, actually terrifying in real life as an adult, I had the thing with uh, Drew Peterson. Anything else you want to add to that list, or is that good? Yeah, I mean, I think as an adult, you find a whole different class of things to be terrified by, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. they have nothing to do with supernatural or you know anything like that. I mean, you know, the first time driving home with my um, with my oldest son, maybe one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. Just the idea that here's this tiny person who is completely squishy you know like even though they're in this like like almost like a, a tank of a uh of a baby seat <laughs> you know it's probably safer than any you know than any restraint that i that i have just the idea that you know if we got into a wreck this this kid would be a risk and did, did the people at the hotel or the, at the hospital know that we're uh we're completely unqualified parents? <laughs> you know? that yeah, that mix is is, is pretty terrifying but mm. yeah i mean the world is a scary enough place uh you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of real world fears, and that might be part of why you know I retreat into fiction a lot because at least those are contours that you can easily understand, and once you put the book down, they're gone. Right. Uh, flipping that question around, any time in your yeah. adult life when you were completely calm or safer place? Yeah, I mean, I think those times are are probably. I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. I mean, I, I think that they're certainly more frequent than they were when I was a teenager. I think the, the older I get, the more the more calm I, I tend to be about just the day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when you grow up, I mean, I, you know, I, I've lived with anxiety my entire life, so it's, uh, you know, it's easier to find those moments where you felt unsafe than when you, when you feel safe. But, um, you know, the... Uh, yeah, I think I think part of just growing older and realizing, okay, well, you made it this far, you're probably going to make it the next 20, 30 years too. It'll be fine. Um, you know, having having that that experience behind you is, is calming all by itself. Mm. But at the same time, not because then you know the other side is on the way and the inevitable march of time. Well, we try not to think about that too much. Um, Something in yeah, between. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. The yeah, the the girl with the anchor on her neck is going to come for us, you know, one way or another. But it's uh, I'd be okay with that. Hopefully, not yeah, for a good long while. If it's Neil Gaiman uh, 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 death, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah, I think most I think most of us would be honestly. 
just a visit, not 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 a not a permanent uh, visit. Yeah, exactly. But that's the only time you're ever going to see her. So, exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, shoot, there was something I was going to add. Oh, um, last person you heard. Oh God, do we have to answer this question? Um, no, you don't have. Access. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, what, what bothers me, I think, generally is, you know, when you, when you know you've hurt someone and you are able to recognize that or they're able to tell you, you know, at least you can make amends for it. You know, what really sticks with me is the, the idea that, you know, you could be hurting people and never know about it and never have that chance to give context to what you might have done or not done um to be able to apologize for something you know those are the the things that you know kind of create these worry points in in my life so yeah i mean i don't yeah i mean i can't think of the last time that i've caused someone pain but i'm i'm certain that i have in a lot of cases without knowing and that's a little troublesome mm. do you remember the last person you helped Oh, last person. I yeah, I mean, these are, God, these are really hard questions for me. I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I mean, and, and maybe I'm just a, a terrible, selfish person, but now I can't think of. You know, I mean, there's. Uh, you know, I'm I'm involved in the Chicago chapter of the Horror Writers Association. Um, you know, which you know, Stoker Thomas wearing that, and um, you know, I I try to you know as the co-chair of that group, I try to be helpful. You know, I like to be you know encouraging of other writers and you know try to you know help other writers, especially in that group where I can. Um, so. I, mean, I guess being a part of that group might qualify, but uh, no, it uh, definitely qualifies. Yeah. yeah, you're you're an inspiration yeah. to your fellow writers and your readers. Yeah, um, I, I'd like to try to be at least. Yeah, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Like I said, you you never know what the answers are going to be to some of these questions, and and that's why we ask it because you. Oh sure, yeah, no, I just I feel bad because I, I don't have an answer, and then it makes me think, well, maybe I didn't help someone, and it's just selfish <laughs> and weird. I don't know. No. No, I, like you say, I mean, with, for example, this uh, thing about you're actually not the only person who's brought up the H HWA. Um, we have had at least one other guest who mentioned that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good organization. It's, um, you know, I think every professional contact that I've made has started in some way through the HWA. Nice. So the next two questions I'm going to ask are going to be over your entire life. And they're not, it's not just about horror. This could be any genre. But I'll mm -hmm. give you the two questions at the same time because it could be the same answer for both or two different answers. First one being, what movie have you watched more times than any other? And then second one being your favorite movie. Um, they might actually be the same thing. Um, Empire Strikes Back. Oh, okay. And, really? Okay. Yeah. When I was a kid, you know, again, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to have seen it in the theater and um, was just kind of blown away by it. And at the time so this would have been like 81 i think okay. my dad had a friend this was when vhs was just sort of becoming a thing at least in our area and um the idea of being able to record a movie or record a show and watch it at home whenever you wanted was this incredibly novel idea oh yeah and and also kind of fascinating but if you were going to buy a movie at that time, a movie was a hundred dollars and this was a hundred dollars in eighties money. Right? right. So incredibly, incredibly expensive. But, um, my father had a friend 
who had bootlegged those first two, and at those point, at that point, the only two um, Star Wars movies. So I would watch Empire Strikes Back. I kid you not, like twice a day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was obsessed, and um, to this day, I think I had the movie memorized. (laughs) And um, yeah, so like for an entire summer, I would watch that movie over and over and over again. And it was just endlessly fascinating to me. And even when I watch it now, like the just the way it's edited, and the, you know, the propulsive storytelling, and you know, the great character interactions, and it has this amazing script. And you know, you know people tend to uh, kind of downplay the performances in, in Star Wars movies, and the, you know, they, they have a point when it comes to that first one. But in the second movie, I mean, the character dynamics are already in place, and people are like playing off of each other in these really interesting ways. And, you know, the introduction of Billy Williams' character and all of this stuff, and then that, that like weird kind of downer ending where I had never seen that in a movie before. It's like, well, you mean the good guys don't win? You know, that's that, that kind of blew my mind too. So, yeah, so I think to this day, that's just still one of my favorite movies of all time. If you could describe your emotional reaction to it, what would it be? Uh, just awe. I mean, there's, you know, there are so many moments in that movie that blew my mind as a kid. And I remember I was spoiled um, on the ending when, you know, the whole uh, Darth Vader being Luke's father thing. I'm um, sorry if anyone hasn't watched it. <laughs> um, I think it's yeah, been out for long enough. enough. Spoiler alert on yeah, yeah. the 40-year-old film. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing about, you know, like Darth Vader and Luke at, at the end, like, I remember being told that by one of my friends at school who had seen the movie and I had gotten to see it yet. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, Darth Vader cuts off Luke's hand. And also, he's Luke's father. I'm like, like you're full of yeah. shit. <laughs> like, that does not happen. Yeah, we, we joke about mentioning it 40 years from now, but this was like 40 days from when it came out. Come right. on, kid. Yeah. yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. I mean, and and the thing is, like, I it, it might as well have not been a spoiler because it was just as shocking as it You happened. just didn't like, believe him. You're like, nah, right. nah I don't like, believe you. Like, no, that doesn't happen in movies. I'm sorry. You're, you're making that up. <laughs> and then I had to go back to it and be like, oh, my God, you were telling the truth. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it just, uh, it, it was it was so far from the norm of what I was used to, you know, the, the kinds of stories that I was, I was used to seeing. You know, the idea that the good guys could get their asses handed to them, and that was just the end of the movie. Like, yeah sometimes you lose and that's it's a great lesson to learn as a kid too but um yeah yeah, it just it it blew my mind it was great yeah i'd say it's not uncommon for empire to be the favorite among most people it's it's just got that nostalgia feel plus from the original trilogy it was the best yeah and it is objectively the best star wars movie and i will fight anyone who says that right yeah like objectively Yeah, like my kids grew up on the on, on the prequels, and you know it's not their fault. But um, <laughs> you know, my my son will sometimes just like get my goat and be like, "You know what the best Star Wars movie is? Episode three. And I'm like, "You know what? You you can you can just get out." <laughs> <laughs> go go stay with your mother. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Like, let's see. Let's see after a few days on the streets if you think that that's. that's, 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 that's. <laughs> How'd you get here, kid? They said Star Wars wasn't good. Exactly. Pass that piece of cardboard. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. No, God, that's sorry. It's getting a little darker than I intended, but no. Um, <laughs> or a podcast. We've done the disclaimer. I was going to say. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so hi, everybody. Read my books. Um, <laughs> going back to horror for a moment. Uh, do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? A cult, metaphysical, cannibal, supernatural? Yeah. I mean, I like to think that, you know, all of it is good as long as it's done well. You know, I, I like being... I like being surprised and you know it's it's when a movie kind of hits that sweet spot where you've got excellent performances and excellent character interaction along with a really good premise that seems fresh and interesting um you know when you can kind of hit that you know that sweet spot where you have all of those things firing you know those those are the movies i really gravitate to so you know, it follows is one of those movies that I feel like kind of hits that spot where it's like, wow, this is, you know, not necessarily a complicated story, but it manages to tell it like, very, very effectively. And, um, you know, everything in it just kind of works and get out is the same way, you know, where it's got this like really dark and sinister premise to it. And, you know, the performances are amazing. And it's just this, uh, you know, one of the one of those movies that's like almost like a perfect piece of cinema. Um, you know, the, the first two Alien movies are very much like that for me too, especially that first one because that just you know, in the same way that the thing you, know, you kind of feel like you're in the hands of you know like people who are a little unhinged and anything can happen. It, it sort of has that same kind of feel to it. So yeah, those are the movies that uh, you know really um, appeal to me. So yeah. you know, when, quality when storytelling. Yeah, the quality of storytelling, but also with that mix of surprise as well. So you know, just uh, you know, if you can if you can scare me and and break my heart a little bit at the same time, that's that's like my my, my sweet spot right there. Okay. So this would be the part where I kind of outline some of the things you know potential common topics that have been coming up, and then we talk about that a little bit. And you can either tell me I'm right or wrong, or if I'm slightly off, you know, tweak, you know, what I'm saying or add to it if I'm completely missing something, but sort of the, the twin, there's like two things, one being, um, magic or belief or hope uh, or awe. I think those kind of all are in the same bucket or puddle, if you will, touches on D and D night of the meek dust empire strikes back, um, touches on all of those. And then having this, you know, the twist or with the chaos, the surprise, you're not in Kansas anymore. And the outside looking in voyeurism, I think that might also relate to more the, the magic or, or the belief uh, stuff, but also possibly the, the twists. Cause I mean, depending on what happens and what you're checking out. Do you think those are the two, you know, key things for you in, in your love of horror? Or do you think there's something else or am I like slightly off? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, the idea that you're kind of privy to or witness to something that, you know, is a little bit hidden, a little bit transgressive, you know, I mean, like there's, in, in that first um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, there's the, I mean, it, it, it's 
it's a great movie in a lot of ways. It's also a terrible movie in a lot of ways. But there's, <laughs> you know, there's this idea that you're, you know, when they when they first come to the house, that they're trespassing and seeing inside of something that was not meant for their eyes, right? You know, there's there's something very powerful in that, right? You know, that you're you're sort of um, uh, crossing this threshold that you know you were never meant to cross, right? So I, I think that that is a very um, important aspect of horror for me. But there's also the idea of being a party to that transgression, right? So like if you're if you're reading a horror novel, if you're watching a horror movie, you know you're you're in it with the main characters, right? So if they screw up, it's the same as if you're screwing up, right? Like if they're, you know, a bunch of horny teenagers at a camp that are being killed by a, a, a serial killer, you know, that's, you know, you're in that too, right? Like, and it, uh, uh, you know, morality aside, you know, you're still, you know, you're, you're in that same boat with them, right? Um, that's something that's really powerful to me is that, that ability to kind of, I'm probably not explaining it very well, but it's the, the ability to, sort of lose yourself and make the character situation your own. That's, oh, yeah. that's something that's, uh, you know, is really compelling to me. Yeah. yeah, that's why I always look at the story of uh, viewing and and reading as well is like if if you're able to lose yourself and like become one with the protagonist and get in the driver's seat of the story, then that, that to me is uh, the accomplishment of a well-told story. Yeah, and that's really half the battle when you're writing horror as well, is to kind of create situations that allow you to identify with a character and really, like, you, yep. know, you know, if somebody's being chased through the woods by an axe murderer, nobody cares, right? I mean, it's still, <laughs> you know, unless you know that character and you're you're afraid for that character, um, you know, you're, you're not going to feel that same sense of anticipation and terror that the character is feeling. I hear what you're saying, but for me, I think the identification, it's like, it is important because it's like the path on how you get to what's really important. If you don't have a path to get there, obviously everything fails. So it is important, but it's not as important as the other stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, for me, like character is always very foundational. Um, You know, I know there are a lot of writers out there that kind of are situational writers that and that doesn't make them any better or less. Um, you know, it's just it's just different. But you know, for me, having that that point of identification and having that emotional connection to somebody that that that's really like the key. I think it is. But then the question is, what emotion are you triggering? And and that's where we're talking about. And I'm glad that you brought up the thing about crossing the threshold because that was one that I didn't bring up. But you know, so transgressing. Um, you know, things that aren't meant for your eyes. And now looking at that compared with the, the magic, you know, belief and hope and wondering if they're equal, equally of interest to you, or if the transgressive part is more, um, interesting to you than the, the hopeful part. Um, yeah, I mean, they're really kind of two sides of the same coin for me. If you find yourself in a situation where you're being hounded by a killer, you're being threatened by a supernatural force, that hope is the only thing that's going to carry you through. The idea that 
something like that can be overcome, even in the face of all the evidence of the contrary. That's really where, you know, horror stories, I think, are made. You know, it's this idea that, yes, this terrible thing is happening, but I can get away if I'm clever enough. I can, I can get through it if I'm smart enough or if I'm righteous enough or, you know, whatever, whatever is framing that story. So without that hope, you're really not going to have the same terror. You're going to have somebody who's just resigned to death. <laughs> There's no fun in that, right? <laughs> I don't know, because, I mean, if you think about that, you could also say, or I keeping things in the I statements, I could say, no, I would still be terrified if I found out that there was no hope. It would just be a different kind of terror. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I'm asking this is because for example, with Empire Strikes Back, you know, when you say at the mm-hmm. end, you know, the good guys didn't win at the end of that one. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it sounds like in your case, you are leaning towards the hope, but I'm just, I, I wanted to ask because I could see it going either way with you at, at this point in the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think I follow you. Um, yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I'm telling a story, I, I always want it to be an out and maybe it's an out that the characters don't get to experience, but I always want there to be a feeling that something, you know, some good will come out of this, right? If not good, at least catharsis, you know, some change. And Empire Strike Back is actually a really good example of that because there's this this scene at the end, which I've, I've only learned recently was not originally meant to be in the script. And I can't imagine this movie without that scene. But at the very end, you know, Luke gets the mechanical hand and they're like all, you know, he's like there with Princess Leia and, and um, Lando and Chewie are like going off to like save Han. And there's like this, this moment where all these characters are not necessarily standing together, but they're all sort of united in purpose. And they're looking out like almost literally towards the horizon because they're looking out at like this vast expanse of the galaxy, right? And it's, it's this amazing, hopeful moment, you know, that says, okay, well, even though we just literally got our asses handed to us, I mean, we are like in really bad shape right now, good things are possible. Mm-hmm. And had that movie ended, right, exactly. Had that movie ended any other way, I don't think it would have been as powerful. You know, if it just ended with, Luke on the ship with like the mask over his head and like you know like cradling his stump and all that. <laughs> you know, that would have not not been anywhere near as powerful. But you have that very human sort of um, uh, you know need to press on even in the face of overwhelming odds, and that that to me you know is, is important to have. Is there something that if you look back on your life, is there something that um, triggers a desire for something like that? Um, I mean, I think just human beings in general always want to believe that whatever bad happens has a purpose, right? You know, there's, you know, I think there's a reason that the idea that, well, this is just God's will, right? Like every, every bad thing is in service and I'm not a religious person, but you know, I, I know many people are and, you know, the idea that any bad thing has a purpose and that it's all part of a greater plan that will result in something good. Uh, that's such a common idea in humanity, just in general, that um, yeah, I think there's a lot of weight to that. Mm. Having narrowed in on that, then one of the last questions here, why horror? Because couldn't you explore that in other genres? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you absolutely could, and, uh, you know, many writers do. Um, you know, I think with horror, it's just one of those things that I've always gravitated towards, and they're the stories that I have in my head, so it's much more of a, a me thing, I guess, than anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if I was a different storyteller, I could probably still still tell those kinds of stories that that have um, that uplifting component at the end, or at least the potential for an uplifting component at the end. But you know, the, these are the stories that I've got. You know, they're the ones that uh, you know that, that come to mind. So, I mean, I guess the answer to why horror is just because like, this is who I am, <laughs> which is a fair answer. <laughs> good answer. Yeah, it's good answer. Right. Yeah. Um, last question. Is there anything you've thought of that might be relevant that hasn't come up on the call? Or maybe you thought of something uh, and then the conversation took a left turn? No, I mean, you guys are asking like really, really deep questions. And uh, I appreciate that. This has been a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a very, uh, a very thoughtful experience. I appreciate that. That is what we are trying to do. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm going to head well, close. Well, thank you. Here. Yeah. Um, and thank you to anybody out there listening. Um, you can come visit us at horrormixeshappy.com, support us on Patreon, buy us coffee, uh, join us on Discord where we do listen parties, or just tell a friend. 